Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. What do you mean repent? Because God's not really interested in your outward form if your heart isn't in it. Jeremiah had a message for the people. It was a message of repentance. But the spiritual leaders had not instructed the people in God's word, so they had no idea what to repent of. The message for us? Let's find out as we join Dr. Corbett now for this session on Jeremiah. We also pray, Father, that as your word is preached, you'll confirm it with signs and wonders following. I pray, Father, for those who are sick here today, that according to the promise of your word, which says, as we pray for the sick, they shall recover. And Father, as we preach the word today and as it administers the grace of God into people's hearts, I pray, Lord, that that grace would bring healing to those who are sick. I pray, Father, that as we minister the grace of God to those who are hungering and thirsting for more of the Holy Spirit, that, Father, your word promises there that if you thirst, you'll be satisfied. So, Father, I pray for those who have not yet received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that, Father, you would fill their thirsty soul. Father, for those who are here today and they have questions, perhaps they have honest doubts, I pray, Lord, today that something said would cause their questions to be answered satisfactorily. Father, now I pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. When we met last, we were looking at just the first three verses of Jeremiah chapter 2. And we saw, firstly, that Jeremiah is the prophet who wept, which is an unusual reputation to have, especially for a prophet. Prophets are these hard-nosed guys. And, uh, and I believe there are prophets today. Not many. Uh, I've, I've, you know, I've met hundreds who claim to be. And I've probably met, I could count them on one hand, those who probably were. And they are scary people. They are weird people. They are really weird people. They do things that don't make sense. They, they, you know, I remember I was walking, walking across the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And I'm just walking across. And we're just going back to the car, I think. And he stops. And he's going like this. And I'm going... You're right, Mike. He goes, the Lord's just given me a word for that man who walked past in the business suit. I'll be back in a minute. You know, and you're thinking, now that doesn't happen to me <laughs> every day. You know, it's kind of these weird things that happen. I, I, we, we, we met, um, we, we were in a church where uh, I was a youth leader in this church in northern Victoria. And that particular day was a very controversial day. And uh, it culminated in some events that morning, which weren't altogether pleasant. And just behind us was sitting this guy I'd never seen before. His name was Brad. And um, we, we went over and had a fellowship lunch that was scheduled that day. And Brad sat at our table and I got talking with Brad. And, and Brad said that he'd driven down from New South Wales that morning because the Lord had woken him up early in the morning and told him to go to the particular church where we were. And as Brad started speaking, Brad just got weirder and weirder. 
and these, these guys are really weird. And Brad shared some amazing things and said that the Lord had spoken to him and said that, that he would be needed there to pray for this church because something was going to happen this morning. Now, fluke, coincidence? Uh, you know, probably not. There's, there's these strange things that happen with, with prophets. And of course, in the New Testament, we, we come to, um, <clears throat> what is it, Acts uh, uh, chapter 21, where you have this guy by the name of Agabus. And you have Agabus interrupting Paul's sermon. Now, that's not a hint, an invitation, or a suggestion. <laughs> but Agabus interrupts Paul and says, Take off your belt. And that is definitely not an invitation to anyone. <laughs> but you remember what Agabus does? You remember in, in Acts 21, Agabus says, Give me your belt. And, and then Agabus takes the belt and puts it around his thing and kneels down on the ground. And, and he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit. The one who owns this belt will be dealt, dealt with such. When you come to Jerusalem, this is what they will do to you. Now, I consider that weird. If, if anybody comes up on the stage and rips my belt off my pants, they're in for a bit of a fight for a start. But, but imagine first century church, this is going on. Now, wouldn't you call that weird? Imagine going home that day, how was church today, dear? Well, someone got up and ripped the preacher's belt off. While he was speaking. Now, I consider that weird. So prophets are weird guys. They, they, they can be weird. And Jeremiah certainly is in that category of weird. Weird in the sense that he's, he's hearing things. He's seeing things that the general population aren't seeing and hearing. But he's the prophet who wept. So he's not just hearing it. It's not like he's just getting these premonitions. It's not like he's just speaking these things. He's feeling it he's feeling it and he talks about the word of god coming into him now in chapter one we read about his call how he was called very very young the the most historically it appears the ones that god has the most significant call on for their life are the ones he calls early the ones that God has the most significant call on their life are the ones he calls early. Now, I rejoice in those that live their life away from God and come to God and share these wonderful testimonies of how God took them out of the drug scene, the alcohol scene, the, the, a life of sex and alcohol and debauchery and all the rest of it, and now they've been set free by God. Praise God. God. Amen? Fantastic. But I tell you what, a testimony for me trumps that testimony any day is this. My mum and dad love Jesus. They taught me to love Jesus. I love Jesus. I think there is no one in the universe more beautiful than Jesus and I just want to serve him with all my life, all my heart, all my days. I go, that's the best testimony I will ever hear. So God calls those that he has the most significant call on their life quite young. So if you were raised in a church home, if you're in a, in a, in a Christian family, I'd be thanking God. And, and I'd be very, very grateful. Because while it is true, the thief on the cross beside Jesus was told by Jesus at that, you know... He was told, you'll be in paradise with me. Why? Because the thief on the cross beside Jesus said, I give you my life. In essence, that's what he said. I give you my life. Forgive me of my sin. 
And Jesus on the cross gave this man eternal life and peace with God. So here's the question. What did that man on the cross have to do to earn that? There's nothing he could do. He couldn't, be, he couldn't sign a church membership card. He, he couldn't do the 12-step discipleship alpha program. He couldn't, do, he couldn't get water baptised. There's not a thing he could do except put his faith and trust in the saving work of Christ. That's all he could do. But you know, you can be on your deathbed and die, get, get just before that moment, get peace with God. Please, if you are not at peace with God, get that peace with God. Even if you hear what we have to say and you leave here and go, no, not for me, and you remember what we're saying right now and you are on your deathbed or wherever you're dying. It may not be a bed. Remember that you can cry out to God just like that thief on the cross and ask God to forgive you of your sin. Please, will you do that? Please. We want to meet you. We want, we, we, we want to have a, a Lagana reunion in heaven. And we want you there. Charles Spurgeon used to plead to his audience of 18,000 every weekend, we're going to meet in heaven at the, at, the, at the third gate. Please, meet us there. We want to see you there. It was something like that, he said. Well, the, the, the problem, though, is that the Bible speaks of God rewarding the righteous. And in Hebrews, it, it says that, that for those that persevere and endure and go the distance, it says for them, they will obtain a better resurrection. A better resurrection. So yes, you can be on your deathbed. Yes, you can get peace with God and eternal life. But you know, if you give your life to Christ now and trust him with all your life and live for him and endure the hardship and keep trusting him when it's hard and keep reading the word and keep feeding your soul and you live the best you can for Christ, there will come a point when you will die having lived that way and you will obtain a better resurrection. That's why we want people to give their lives to Christ as early as possible because it does count in this life and in the life to come. Jeremiah was a young man who had given his life over to God. And we read in chapter 1 that he was receiving dreams and visions and such from God. But then in chapter 2, some time has elapsed. And now we find Jeremiah not getting these dreams, now he's hearing. And we, we noted in, in Jeremiah chapter 2 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And so by implication, we can see that between his youth to now his adolescence, he's perhaps an older teenager or a young man here, that he's now, he's now hearing God because he's developed that intimate relationship with God. And I want that in my own life. I, I want to hear God. And in a moment, we're going to have a look at what he had to say about those who were responsible, spiritually responsible to guide and govern and guard God's people and what he had to say to them. So we see that the word of the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. So Jeremiah's developed this relationship and it shows that he was someone who had developed intimacy with the Lord. And what we're going to read here is perhaps intriguing because if I was to ask you, 
What would you do if you were God to ensure that the spiritual condition of Israel was at least maintained? Well, you'd want to have priests and temple sacrifices happening and the rituals of the temple happening all the time. You'd want to have a king endorsing all of that and pretty much you could, you'd pretty much keep that whole thing on track. Well, Israel had all that and yet their hearts became very cold. And as I was thinking about this through the week, I was thinking about John the Baptist strangely enough, that John the Baptist is called the last Old Testament prophet by Christ. He's considered by Christ to be the greatest of all the prophets and he most definitely fits into that weird category. So here's John the Baptist and as um, someone reminded me, what does John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Their middle name. And... I'm on a roll. <laughs> and John the Baptist was at a time when the temple had been rebuilt, sacrifices and the feasts had been reinstituted. And it looked like, it looked like spiritually Israel was doing well. A new society had been formed called the Pharisees. And we read about these guys and go, oh, those, you know, the Pharisees. But no, these guys were passionate for the law. They were passionate for God. They were trying their best. Synagogues had come up and around. And yet, despite all of this, Israel's heart was cold toward God. And John the Baptist comes on the scene. And in the midst of everybody being religious, he calls for, what would you sum John the Baptist's message up in one word? How would you sum it up? What's the word? Repent. Repentance. Repent. And, and if you look at it kind of in the natural, you'd think, John the Baptist, there's never been a spiritual high as high as this. We've got synagogues where people are turning up and having the word taught. We've got the, the temple happening with priests and sacrifices happening. What do you mean repent? Because God's not really interested in your outward form if your heart isn't in it. And this is what we're going to see the prophet Jeremiah saying. So what is Israel's spiritual condition at this time? Because they've got a temple. They've got the priesthood. They've got the rituals, they've got the ceremonies, they've got the form. And Spurgeon and others used to call this formal religion. It's all form. It's formal religion. But it's cold. It's cold. It's one of the reasons why in our church we don't want to be so bound by form that there's no heart in what we do. You know, as I was singing these songs this morning, I chose to make these songs that we sang, which I thought were great this morning, prayers. Great prayers. And Israel's spiritual condition, I think, should sound a warning to us because what Israel was called to be, the church is called to be. We're called to be what God had called Israel to be. And we read that in uh, uh, verses 2 and 3 where they, were, they started out with a, a devotion in their youth. And then God goes on in, and, uh, in verse 3 and he says, You are to be holy to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest, and I was to protect you, jealously to guard you. Anyone who touched you, I dealt with them myself. So now we come down to verse 4. So look with me if you can, please. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. 
Now, here's the first thing I just want us to ponder about this statement. If you know anything about the history of Israel, Jeremiah is not able to prophesy to all of Israel. Why? Because the ten northern tribes of Israel, about about, uh, roughly 100 years prior to this, had been taken away by the nation of Assyria. So Israel, if I, do, if I use my two fists, the lower fist is Judah and Benjamin. The top fist is all the other tribes, the ten tribes. So two tribes down the south, ten tribes up to the north. These guys had the temple, these guys didn't, and these guys went off very quickly into idolatry. And the Bible says that the nation of Assyria, which is modern Iran, came down and just took them all, boom, gone. Gone, just scattered. Gone. They've never returned the dispersion. Some of them had infiltrated down into the south who were loyal to God, and some of them, not many. So now here we are about 100 years later, and, and Jeremiah is speaking to all of the clans of Israel. Now I'm really intrigued by this, and as I pondered it, I, th- I thought, how could he be doing that? But then I realised, I think God's trying to say something here. Well, God doesn't try to say something, God just says it. He's speaking this word to everybody. And there's a sense in which we have individualised our spirituality. You know, well, that's, you know, your spirituality is your business. It's a private matter, but, you know, whatever you reckon. And that's not true spirituality, is it? True spirituality is not just you being connected with God. True spirituality is you being connected with God. And in this era, it's also being connected with the church. And you'll discover as you get connected with God, God by his spirit will will weave you into the church. He will. And we're in this to get the church. And we we read in Romans chapter 12 that if one of you weep, if one of us weeps, what do the rest of us do? We weep. We feel it. If one of you rejoices, we all rejoice. We're in this together. And, if there's, and it's possible, it sounds to me, based on what Jeremiah is saying, it's possible that together, in our spiritual level, we can let things fall and together we can help each other lift our devotion to Christ. So this is very interesting. He's not addressing an individual. He's addressing a group. And I think we need to hear this as a church, that we can understand that together, as a church, our individual spirituality is, is somewhat dependent upon our connection to the church. Verse 5, thus says the Lord. Now as we look at this, I, I want to really sum up what Jeremiah is about to do by noting that Israel had forgotten. The nation of Israel, who he's now addressing, had forgotten certain things. Now, it's not that, I'm, that I want to labour this point. I think Jeremiah labours this point. So because he's labouring, I want to labour it as well to be faithful to the text. So here we go. What had Israel forgotten? Jeremiah's going to remind them of certain things that they had forgotten. And from this, I hope we can see that vibrant spirituality does need, at times, a good forgettery. There are certain things we should forget our you know, disappointments, mistakes. There are certain things we do need to forget. There are certain things we need to leave in the past. Hurts, offences, we, for, we can forget those. So we need a good forgettery. 
But more importantly, we need a good memory. We need a good memory. Vibrant spirituality is remembering the right things. Israel had forgotten certain things. Israel had forgotten certain things. Let's read verse 5. This, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless, uh, worthlessness and became worthless? Notice that in verse 5. You become like the God you worship. They went after those things that are worthless and they became worthless. You become like the God you worship. I tried to keep it a secret, but I think the secret's out. I go for the Geelong Football Club in the <laughs> AFL. <laughs> Occasionally, <clears throat> I will wear a Geelong Football Club tie. I have to make sure they've won that weekend, but I'll usually... <laughs> Wear my Geelong Football Club tie. I have a Geelong Football Club steering wheel, ste steering wheel, um, seat belt protector. Oh, I do have a Geelong Football. I did have. I sold. Anyway, I've got a. I, I sit to to my meal. I have a Geelong Football Club cup for my drink. I go and play tennis, and I have a Geelong Football Club cooler thing for my drink bottle. I, I wear track pants. What are you going? That's pathetic for. I have. Tracksuit pants that say the cats. So it's no secret. And that's why I have developed the physique of <laughs> a champion AFL footballer. I just got to breathe in as I say that. You become like what you worship. Now, I'm not suggesting I worship the John Football Club, but there, is, there are those people that you know they are so besotted with, well, let's randomly pick something like death metal and I'll just randomly point over in this area. <laughs> <laughs> they go to such lengths to honour their heroes of death metal, which is, I'll give you a sample of the lyrics of death metal. <laughs> um, you may have missed the nuance, but I've grown to appreciate it since one of our staff members will blare it during the week and... and attempt to introduce it to the news this week I've noticed. Anyway, anyway, I digress. <laughs> but you, you can tell what people worship they become like. What you focus on is what you become like. When I did advanced motorcycle rider training, we were taught how to get out of a tri tricky situation by doing one very simple thing. It's the first thing you've got to do. Don't look at the problem. Don't look at the problem. In advanced motorcycle riding, your eyes determine your direction. You go where you look. It's a spiritual principle, isn't it? If you can see God, if you can, and I don't mean with your natural eyes, with your spiritual eyes, see God. You, you, you see the God you worship. 
And I'm not saying you imagine God. I'm saying you, get a, you, you form an impression of God based on his word. And as you come into intimacy with him, I hope you get the picture that I get when I come into worship. And we sang you know, Agnes Day this morning, that picture of, of heaven when they worship. And if we were to go into that text in Revelation where they're singing the words to that song, it describes the throne of God as having flames around it that do not flicker. There's seven flames in perfect shape. There's nothing unstable about the presence of God. And then it describes his very presence as having water all around it. And how does it describe that sea of water? What's the word? A glassy sea. What does that tell us about that water? Peace. Infinite peace. The God you worship is a God who is at infinite peace. There's no breeze blowing out the flames. There's no wind ruffling the water. It's a picture. It's a word picture that our God is in control and we worship him. And as you worship this God, whatever problem you think you've got, with God, you can handle it. And Jeremiah says, why would you give up this God and go and worship a piece of wood or clay that you made. You made this. And he asks the question in verse 5, well, how did I let you down? What wrong did your fathers find in me? Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. What's Jeremiah doing? He's reminding Israel. He's, he's wanting them to not forget, but to remember. We come to verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. And when you came in, you defiled my land had made my heritage an abomination. How did they do that? Well, Jeremiah's going to go on, and, he, and in later chapters, he's going to talk about how they practice sexual immorality. And he says, this polluted the land. Fathers wouldn't father their children. Parents wouldn't parent their children. At one point, we, we get to this, this scene in, in this era where, where mothers are killing their babies for food. And, 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 and the statement from Jeremiah is you're polluting the land by such acts. You're defiling the land. And so we come to, to verse 8, and this is where I, I, really, I want to point this out, that the, Israel's leaders had failed to do what Jeremiah had just done. Jeremiah had reminded the people of God's goodness. God's faithfulness. I tell you, one of the most dangerous, dangerous places you can be spiritually is comfortable. Blessed. When you're comfortable and you're blessed, for most of us, our prayer life gets slack. When you're in need and you're desperate, your prayer life goes up a little. Now, I'm someone who has the hope that there's an exception to this principle. I'm hoping that I can be both blessed and desperate for God. Not because I want more stuff. I'm not interested 
just in the king's table. I'm interested in the king. You know, they say that Judas was somebody who was more interested in the food at the table of Christ than he was in Christ. And although he looked religious out of all of the candidates, remember when they, when they went to pick and they said, well, who, who is it that final night? Who is it who will betray you? Isn't that an interesting question? I mean, if they'd seen the movies that we'd seen about the life of Christ, you could pick Judas a mile away. He's the shifty, beady-eyed looking guy. Looks like he's into death metal. <laughs> but they didn't know. Why? Because he wasn't and he didn't look he didn't look irreligious. He didn't look like he was a Satanist. He looked like he was one of us. He looked like one of the good guys. And yet here we go again. The real heart of God is to go beyond the form and the pretense and go straight to the heart and can see right into someone's heart like Judas and go, you're a devil. And here, Jeremiah is is asking these people, don't you remember? You were enjoying the food at the king's table. I gave you plenty of fruits, says the Lord. I gave you plenty of good things. What was wrong? How did I let you down? Oh boy, do you hear the heart of God in this? See what God is aching for? Someone has said sin is not just breaking the law of God, it's breaking the heart of God. It's not just that you've broken a rule when you sin, you've broken God's heart because those rules come from his heart. Oh man, here Israel's leaders, and we're going to see three categories of leaders that Jeremiah points out, they failed to remind Israel of God's goodness. I think one of the main jobs as parents is to remind our children. Remember when we prayed for this and God came through? You remember when we read that in the Word, we applied it and, and it happened? We remind people. As parents, we've got to do it. Here we go, verse 8. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law, they were the Levites, did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Oh boy. So what have we got? We've got the priests and Levites in, in the, the temple. We've got the, the shepherds, which is like the king and his princes and those who work with the king. Shepherds, they, they transgressed. And we've got the prophets who were prophesying things that profited them. I've often reflected that, how am I going to preach? Am I going to preach any different if our church just exploded in size? Because you know, those who've been with us over this journey of nearly 16 years here in this church, I generally don't hold back because I want to please God more than I want to please my audience. And that's not meant to mean I don't care about what you think. I do. I want to say it sensitively. I want to be wise in how I say things. But if we're looking at God's word and it's challenging us, and here's Jeremiah saying, the priests and the Levites, oh, sure, they were doing the sacrifices. Oh, sure, they were, what does he say, handling the law. I mean, it all looks good. But they didn't know me. 
They didn't know me. Isn't it amazing in Philippians chapter 3, one of the last letters that Paul wrote, and Paul, when he's talking about, you know, I press toward the goal that lies before me, he goes on in verse 10 and he says what the goal is of Philippians chapter 3. He says, this is the goal, that I might know him. You might know him? Paul, your, your handkerchief was so anointed one day, you wiped your brow with it. Someone who was sick picked it up and they got instantly healed. You've seen extraordinary miracles. You, at one point, Paul, were stoned to death. You had an out-of-body experience. You went to heaven, and we read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And, Paul, you were used to prophesy. You were used to write two-thirds of the New Testament. You're one of the, the, the greatest heroes of Christianity. And you say you don't really know him yet? How much more should we be making that our prayer? If you're praying for the spectacular, if you're praying for the stuff that will give you a little quick boost, grow up! And start to pray that you'll get to know him in the midst of the storms. Pray that you'll get to know him when no one else around you is standing and God wants you to stand. Pray that. And here's Jeremiah scolding Israel's leaders because they had failed. And what had they failed to do? It wasn't that they had failed to mentor or disciple. It wasn't that they'd failed to teach or provide services or, or maybe even pastoral visitation and all that kind of stuff. But it was all, according to Jeremiah, pointless because it wasn't being done for God and it wasn't reminding the people of God. It wasn't helping the people to focus on God. Oh, church, I hope that there's something in our heart that cries out, God, I want to know you. We come down verse 9. And as we look at this, we're going to read this passage from verses 9 to 11. And there are certain things that really we should not forget what we should always keep in mind. Don't forget certain things. Don't forget certain things. Think about what we do in church on a Sunday. I, I hope you can see that the first song we sang was a song provoking you. Anyone remember the first song we sang? It was so long ago. <laughs> what was the first song we sang, Sonia? Forever you are faithful. That's out of the Psalms. And it's reminding us that God is faithful. God is good. What a great thing. And as we sang the rest of the songs, we were being reminded these are the things you shouldn't forget. Then when we came around the table of the Lord, we're being reminded of what has been done for us and what it means now. And Jesus said, for as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me till I come. It's the one act in our service that brings the past, the present and the future at an intersect. We're being reminded. We're being reminded now. And we're being reminded to look forward. Reminding is so important. 
Therefore I will contend with you, declares the Lord, verse 9, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens. At this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And here comes verse 13. And before we get there, where we're going to conclude this section, I want you to to realise what Jeremiah is about to say. And as Jeremiah is about to say this, I'm reminded of John chapter 7, verse 37, just before Jesus was killed. One of his last messages that he gave in public was this. If you are thirsty, come to me and I will give you drink and out of your belly shall flow what? Rivers of living water. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, Jesus said. So here's what we're going to see. And this is what Jeremiah is reminding them. When you live, you live your best life. When your life is lived, devoted to God. You live your best life when your life is lived, devoted to God. And here's how Jeremiah says it in verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The God of infinite peace, the God of infinite love, the God of infinite provision wants to give us sufficient peace, sufficient wisdom, sufficient provision to be able to live the best life we can. And he reminds Israel, I was, I was doing this. What's the problem? Yet you've forsaken me. You've turned your back on me. And in a moment, he's going to turn that whole language around to the language of of a bride running from her husband. And the husband is heartbroken. This is how God feels about his people. We now come to verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What do we see from this? Well, I hope you can see that there's a challenge in this for us today, and here's the challenge. Where do you get your drinks? Where do you get your drinks? The drink that we all need for our thirsty soul. When the crunch time comes, where do you get your drinks from? Is it from a bottle? Is it from a magazine? Is it from a pill? Is it in the arms of someone who belongs to another? Where do you get your drinks from? Boy. And here's the question that I want to finish up with. And I tell you, I'm asking myself because I want Christ to be the fountain of my life. I want to drink from his fountain. I want the water that he offers for my soul. That's what I want. Do you? If you haven't got peace with God, 
you're thirsty and you need a drink. You need the right drink. And Christ offers you the right drink, a drink for your soul to satisfy that deep thirst you have. So here's the question. Is Christ your fountain of living water? Is he? Are you devoted to him in such a way that you want to know him? I mean, not just know about him, but know him? Is he the fountain of your life? Let's pray. Father, I pray firstly for my own life. God, I want Jesus to be water for my soul. I want to be fully devoted to Christ. I want that fresh water for my soul. I want to be someone who, who's able to drink the real and living water. Oh God, I pray that you would fill my soul with water that Jesus offers. Father, I pray that for our church right here and for those listening to me right now, that, Lord, you would flood and fill their soul with that fresh, thirst-quenching soul water that we all long for. Father, help us not to be guilty of hewing out our own cisterns, but, Lord, help us to drink from the one that you have provided for us. Now, if you're here today, you're listening to me, and you know you don't have peace with God. You know that your life isn't where it should be. Jesus isn't the fountain of your life. I invite you. It's just a prayer. It's a prayer of invitation to Jesus. It's a prayer that says, Jesus, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. I've been looking for you. What's missing in my life is the very thing that's supposed to be in my life, and that's a connection with you. And it starts with a prayer, and that prayer just simply is coming before someone that you've wronged. And that someone that you've wronged is prepared to forgive, but they just need to hear you say, I'm sorry. And as you come before God right now and say, God, I'm sorry. I've broken your heart. And as you come before this God, this God is prepared to say, I forgive you because I've taken your wrong." And I've put it on my son on that cross at Easter. He's taken the penalty. And as you pray that prayer and ask God to forgive you of your sin, your life can be made clean and brand new from that point. Thank God. Amen. What's the message for us? To be vigilant in instructing our children in the word. Let us not become religious, but instead be followers of the word. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Session 5 of Jeremiah, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.